And I think a lot of us in my generation, we just sort of gave up at that point. Why you is know, that? Do you why, why continue to fight for something that's dead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we pretty much just gave up. And then what did you do? It kind of seemed like people put their energy into other causes. Yeah, and there were so many problems. I mean, you know, so many women are in the United States of America are dying from domestic violence. So things like the Violence Against Women Act became so important, you know, and we put our energies into trying to fix the problems, you know, without the benefit of the ERA. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Civil Rights Act and those kind of things are something that can be used as a tool. But, you know, at, at any point, those can be taken away if it's not a constitutional right. Mm-hmm. Those can be changed very easily by a Congress uh, that gets controlled by people who want to go backwards, as I think we're seeing today. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, Forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Today, the House of Representatives cleared a hurdle to make the Equal Rights Amendment the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. The House voted to remove a deadline for states to ratify the amendment, which would guarantee women the same legal rights as men. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment, and this is Ordinary Equality. So we've covered that the ERA was killed in 1982, thanks in part to Phyllis Schlafly and her army of conservative women. But feminists didn't just disappear into the ether. As my mom mentioned in the clip at the top of the show, the inequality they were fighting against was still rampant, and the need for action was dire. So what happened next? Today we're talking about the battle for and the creation of what some people call the de facto ERA. It's clear that women's rights have come a long way since the 1960s and 1970s, even without the ERA. We talked in episode four about the two ways the amendment will help push equality forward. The two L's, litigation and legislation. When the ERA failed, feminists worked those two paths without it. The result is a patchwork of protections made of court decisions and laws. Let's talk about litigation first. The basic strategy on the litigation side of things was to try to use court decisions to prove that women were already protected in the Constitution under the 14th Amendment. One woman had an outsized role in pushing that strategy forward, the one and only Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, 
Amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She spoke not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. RBG started her legal career as a student at Harvard Law School. Like my mom, she was in a tiny minority, one of only nine women in her class. After her husband graduated, she transferred to Columbia Law School and finished there, at the top of her class. RBG has been a consistent supporter of the ERA. In 1973, she wrote an article for the American Bar Association Journal called The Need for the Equal Rights Amendment. At the same time, she pursued a parallel strategy. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg was teaching law. She had just moved from Rutgers School of Law to Columbia Law School. And around that time, she co-founded the ACLU Women's Rights Project. And one of their major goals was to find a home for women in the Constitution, and specifically in the 14th Amendment. That's Lauren Moxley, host of the podcast, The Ginsburg Tapes. And so the ACLU Women's Rights Project started bringing lawsuits all around the country, challenging laws that discriminated on the basis of sex. They would litigate these cases in the trial court, um, sometimes in the um, federal district courts, and then they could often go up on appeal and they would continue to litigate them often all the way up to the Supreme Court. The argument that women could be protected under the 14th Amendment was not a new one. The movements for women's rights and abolition of slavery ran parallel to each other in the 19th century. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the U.S. added three amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Women at the time argued that the 14th should also prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. But when it was ratified in 1868, it did not. Suffragists lost early attempts to get the right to vote through the 14th after it was ratified. Still, Ruth Bader Ginsburg decided to try expanding the interpretation of the amendment once again. She got the idea from pioneering civil rights activist and attorney Polly Murray. So Polly Murray was a writer, activist, labor organizer, poet, Episcopal priest. She co-founded the National Organization for Women. She is a really important thinker um, that preceded Ginsburg's movement. She co-authored a law review that conceived of this idea of convincing the Supreme Court that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause applies to women. It's called Jane Crow and the Law. And it wasn't for a decade um, until that that idea started to be actualized. Ruth Bader Ginsburg came on the scene. She and the ACLU Women's Rights Project really followed the, the blueprint set out by Polly Murray to convince the Supreme Court that the word persons in the 14th Amendment includes women. They knew each other, they interacted, and I think Ginsburg uh, was very diligent in crediting Polly Murray for coming up with this idea and for being so foundational to this strategy. RBG recently spoke of Polly Murray in an interview with Bill Moyers. On that subject, we'd like to speak about uh, a woman who came to be a role model for me, although we were both adults. In fact, she was I think in one of the first groups of Episcopal ministers to be ordained, her name is Polly Murray. Yes, yes, that's right. And she wrote an article that 
was a major influence on me and other women in the 70s. It was called Jane Crow. Jane Crow. And the law, yeah, in, in which she spoke about all the barriers, the artificial barriers that stand in the way of women being able to achieve what their talent and hard work would allow them to achieve. She, she was a woman way ahead of her, her time. So RBG and Co. set out to try to get women into the Constitution through interpretation via a variety of court cases. Let's run through the highlights. The first of note was called Reed versus Reed. The case centered around an Idaho law that said men must be preferred to women in the administration of estates. Here's Lauren Moxley again. There was a couple, Cecil and Sally uh, Reed, and they shared custody of their teenage son. Their teenage son killed himself while at his father's house, and his father had a track record of abuse, but Cecil was still appointed the administrator of the son's estate over Sally because of this law. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not argue this case in the Supreme Court, but the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and Ginsburg was a huge part of this, wrote what is called sometimes the grandmother brief in the Supreme Court as an amicus. And ultimately, the Supreme Court struck down the law. This is the first time the Supreme Court recognized that sex equality could be encompassed in the 14th Amendment. RBG added Polly Murray and Dorothy Kenyon as co-authors on her Read versus Read brief in appreciation of their thought leadership in the movement. In the Supreme Court and in courts generally, cases take into account previous legal decisions, or what's called precedent. So the Reed versus Reed decision was a really big deal. It set a precedent. Next up, a case called Frontiero versus Richardson. Okay, so a couple named Sharon and Joseph Frontiero got married in 1969. And when they got married, Sharon checked her paycheck and she had expected to get a bump for housing benefits because she was a military service member. And she knew that her male colleagues um, received such a housing allowance when they got married. It wasn't there. And when she asked, it wasn't granted. That's because there was this law that said that wives of male military service members automatically were deemed dependent and the couple was entitled to special benefits. But if the military service member was a woman, she had to prove that her husband depended on her for over half of their support. And so Sharon, as a military service member, received about 8200 a year in salary. And Joseph, her husband, was a college student, and he only got about $200 a month in veterans benefits, and he received $30 a month for his job working as a night watchman. And that small amount put him over um, the limit, and they weren't entitled to receive the benefits had they received if the roles were reversed. And so Ginsburg brought this case as an amicus brief in the Supreme Court. An amicus brief basically means that Ginsburg wasn't the couple's lawyer but she and the ACLU were serving in an advisory capacity on the case. Ginsburg and the couple's lawyer had different ideas about how the arguments should go down. The couple's lawyer sought a narrower victory than RBG. So Ginsburg had a different strategy. It was much broader. She had two goals. She wanted to show how so-called protective legislation, giving these military wives a special benefit, was actually a manifestation of the expected roles of the sexes. And she also wanted to argue that sex, like race, should be a suspect classification that's subject to strict scrutiny. And that would be brand new. 
You might remember the different levels of judicial scrutiny from episode four. Strict is the most intense. Here's a quick reminder from Lauren. At this time, the Supreme Court had held that certain classifications within the law, when there's a law that distinguishes on the basis of race, national origin, or alienage, those laws would be um, held to a really high standard called strict scrutiny. And that means that courts would look very closely at these laws to figure out whether they um, could be constitutional. And it was a really hard test to pass. Ginsburg's goal was for sex to be among that list and for sex to be similarly held to be a, a suspect classification subject to strict scrutiny. The court struck down the law that distinguished between men and women for the provision of housing allowance in Frontiero versus Richardson in an eight to one verdict. But only four justices signed on to making sex subject to strict scrutiny. That's one short of the majority RBG needed. Justice Brennan acknowledged Ginsburg's core argument was that even laws that purport to benefit women by giving them special advantages ultimately hold women back. He wrote, There can be no doubt that our nation has had a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination. Traditionally, such discrimination was rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism, which in effect puts women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. And Ginsburg relied on this language going forward in her other cases before the Supreme Court, but she never again got this close to five votes for strict scrutiny. Frontiero versus Richardson was decided in 1973. The fact it happened in tandem with the rise of the ERA was no accident. The painful irony of the, this relationship between the ERA and the Frontiero case is that the initial success of the ERA is what contributed to the initial failure of strict scrutiny because these swing justices, Justices Stewart and Powell, were so confident that the ERA would pass in the political branches. But then the subsequent decline of the popularity of the ERA in the mid-1970s contributed to the ultimate failure of, the, of strict scrutiny as well because it started to become evident that Ginsburg didn't have the fifth vote around the same time that it started to become less likely that the ERA would be ratified. Ginsburg worked on five other Supreme Court cases that took down sexist laws and built up the precedent for intermediate scrutiny. As we've previously discussed, that's what cases about sex discrimination receive. It's better than the lowest level rational basis, but it's not quite as good as strict scrutiny. So intermediate scrutiny has proven to have teeth. It is not a toothless standard. And probably the best case to demonstrate that, that intermediate scrutiny um, is a meaningful standard is actually a decision that Justice Ginsburg wrote when she was on the bench many years later. And that's Virginia Military Institute's case. And there, Ginsburg described intermediate scrutiny as requiring a genuine and exceedingly persuasive justification for sex-based discrimination. In 1996, Ruth Bader Ginsburg played a different role in a monumental Supreme Court case. This time, she sat on the bench. The case was United States versus Virginia, and the subject was whether women could attend Virginia Military Institute. Here's my former law professor, Jamie Raskin. Jamie represents Maryland's 8th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. 
Before that, he was a constitutional law professor for 29 years. Really critical case was U.S. versus Virginia, the VMI decision, which struck down the exclusion of women from Virginia's top military training academy, which was all for men. And the justification that they summoned up for it was to protect the special nature of adversative training, that is, the harsh rigors of uh, training the cadets. And the court said, well, um, some men can pass those and some men can't, and some women can pass those and some women can't. And in any event, we also believe what's really going on here is you are trying to enshrine masculine supremacy and to keep women out and to keep women in a subordinate posture. For Virginia State House Delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy, that decision changed her life. So I decided to go to Virginia Military Institute when I was at Petersburg High School in my JROTC class. And we were watching the Virginia Military Institute decision on TV. And up to that point, I had not known that there were colleges or universities, institutes of higher learning that I could not attend just because I was female. And so the men in the class share sentiments that women should not be allowed to go to military colleges because we are biologically inferior, mentally and physically. And most importantly, we will be distraction to men. So we should not be admitted. And I remember looking at the men in that class and hearing Justice Ginsburg when she said, and I'm paraphrasing, that women can do all things if given the opportunity. And separate is not equal because Virginia Military Institute wanted women to go to a all women's uh, military school and not to VMI. And so the same way that water fountains and segregated schools are not equal, that's not equal either. And so I looked at the men in that room after hearing Justice Ginsburg words and saying that I'm just as smart and powerful and capable as any man that was in that classroom. And I genuinely believe that because my grandmother told me so. And so after declaring that I was going to go to Virginia Military Institute, my best friend at the time, he walked up to me and he said, well, I was going to go to West Point, but I'm going to go with you to VMI because I want to be there to watch you when you fail. Because although we were friends, I was still female and therefore inferior. So he went to VMI, so did I, and another male in our class. And after many long, arduous years, um, painful years, um, out of the other two men that with, with me to VMI, I was the only one to graduate. RBG's strategy changed the lives of women across the U.S., it was so successful that in the early 2000s, some legal scholars began to argue that since the ERA's defeat, the Supreme Court's interpretations of the 14th Amendment had created a de facto ERA. But judicial opinions are far less permanent than a constitutional amendment. Keep in mind, as recently as 2011, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia was clear. He didn't think that the Constitution provides such protection. Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. It, it doesn't. Nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. 
And while Scalia may have been alone in speaking with such candor in public about this, he's not the only one with that view. Here's Lauren Moxley again. It is not the same as the Equal Rights Amendment. Intermediate scrutiny is a judge-made doctrine subject to the whims of the judiciary. The Equal Rights Amendment would be part of the Constitution that would be exceedingly difficult to take away. I think that sex equality deserves its own permanent home in the Constitution, as the U.S. Constitution is the only major written constitution that has a Bill of Rights but lacks a declaration of the equality of the sexes. The 14th Amendment has never been a perfect fit for sex equality, as we all know that it was enacted with racial equality in mind. And I think that the ERA would give sex equality its own home, enshrining sex equality among our country's highest values. The ERA would also have the potential to affect a number of substantive areas that have fallen outside of the reach of intermediate scrutiny, including pregnancy discrimination, equal pay, domestic violence laws, and others. While RBG wants intermediate scrutiny and strict scrutiny to be the same, a litigant bringing a challenge under the strict scrutiny standard has a 73% chance of success, while a litigant bringing a challenge under intermediate scrutiny has only a 47% chance of a success. We've just started to scratch the surface. If you want to find out more nitty-gritty, gloriously nerdy detail about RBG's cases, Listen to Lauren's podcast, The Ginsburg Tapes. Her episodes are filled with tons of historical context and all the great gossip about the Supreme Court justices. We've covered what happens in the courts, the litigation, but there's more to the story. After the break, we'll talk about the other L, legislation. Have you ever considered therapy? Do you have a good therapist right now? Is there something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I think everyone could benefit from having a professional mental health counselor. I know I do. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counseling network, which may not be locally available in many areas. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor. You get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com backslash equality. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Ordinary Equality listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com equality. 
So before, and especially after, the ERA failed, feminists pursued litigation and legislation. In other words, in addition to all the action happening over in the judicial branch, Congress passed laws to make things more equitable. So let's run down the legislative roster. First, we have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, national origin, and sex. The fact that sex made it in there at all is almost a fluke. As you can imagine, many racist Southern legislators weren't into this bill in 1964, and they sought a way to kill it. During the Title VII debate, Virginia Representative Howard Smith introduced a one-word amendment, sex, to the other categories already included. Opponents of Smith's amendment saw it as a prank, intended to expose the limits of liberal egalitarianism, or as a poison pill that would make the bill more difficult to pass. If it was a prank, it backfired. The House accepted by a vote of 168 to 133. It then passed in the Senate and became law in July of that year. Title VII, along with another law, the Equal Pay Act, is what the U.S. women's soccer team with Megan Rapino and all those other heroes are currently using to sue the U.S. Soccer Federation for $67 million in their equal pay lawsuit. Next up, we have Title IX, a federal civil rights law protecting equality in education. It was drafted and co-sponsored by the first woman of color to ever serve in Congress, and it was posthumously named the Patsy Mink Equality in Education Act in her honor. It passed in 1972, the same year she ran for president. Essentially, Title IX prohibits sex discrimination in educational institutions that receive federal funding, the vast majority of schools. While Title IX is a very short statute, the Supreme Court decisions and guidance from the U.S. Department of Education have given it a broad scope to cover sexual harassment and sexual violence. But Title IX is a perfect example of why piecemeal legislation is not a true fix. The Trump administration, with Betsy DeVos at the helm, has been chipping away at the protections Title IX provides to victims of assault and making it harder to hold perpetrators accountable. Legislation can be changed. Here's Carolyn Maloney. She represents New York's 12th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. And the only way equal is going to be equal is if women are in the Constitution, period. And I would say that in Congress, I spend an incredible amount of time, along with my colleagues, fighting to hold on to what we already achieved. Uh, Title VII, Title IX, uh, always their efforts to roll back uh, success that we've made for women. The only way you can stop that uh, is by passing and ratifying the equal rights. And our rights should not be dependent on who's in the White House, who's in charge of, 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 of Congress, who's on the Supreme Court, who by a whim can roll back rights that we already have. It, it's a, a constant fight to hold on to what you have already achieved. Uh, I will give you one clear example Title IX, equality of, of treatment in, in education and sports. For some reason, the Republicans really disliked Title IX. So there were constant attacks on it. There was an attack to the Supreme Court, and they lost. Many attempts to roll it back with legislation, 
and they lost. And then they finally won with an executive order from President Bush. And this exe executive order said that educational facilities across this country would not have to adhere to Title IX, providing equality to women in sports, um, if they handed out a questionnaire and asked the women arriving on campus if they wanted to participate in sports. And if they didn't fill out this questionnaire, then you could abolish the sports for women. Now note, the men were not getting the questionnaire. And I would say young men and young women are not filling out questionnaires their first day on campus. And it was a undermining of the law in a tremendous way. Um, and Title IX is very important in building uh, health and leadership skills and really uh, uh, scholarships. Uh, many young women are going to school and having the advantage of athletic scholarships that men had. A lot of our young women leaders, if you talk to them, they were leaders in sports. And this was a, this was a big deal. I'll, I'll tell you from a story from my personal life. My daughters, I have two daughters, and they're both great athletes. And my husband said to me one day, he says, how did they get to be such great athletes? He says, I wasn't a great athlete, and you weren't a great athlete. And I said, how do you know I wasn't a great athlete? Because when I went to public school and universities, uh, there was no sports for women. We, we could stand on the sidelines and applaud the men, but we weren't given that opportunity. So none of us know or had that advantage of uh, learning leadership and um, team sports and, and excelling in it. So it's a very, very important area in education and in sports. But for some reason, they attack the sports area, not the education area, but relentlessly. If you had an Equal Rights Amendment, they could not have handed out a, a, a questionnaire only to women. They'd have to do it to men, too. And they couldn't roll it back. They wouldn't have even tried. You'd be constitutionally protected. Amendments are much more permanent than laws. An Equal Rights Amendment would be protected from the political whims of individual politicians, judges, and justices. Here's Virginia House Delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy again. I like to remind people that we can have a lot of patchwork laws, but they mean nothing if you don't have a constitutional anchor um, in the words of Eileen Davis. So what that means is, is that you can have the 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 Voting Rights Act, but if you don't have the 15th Amendment, then it that's what gives it teeth. Um, you can have um, the Civil Rights Act, but if you do not have the 13th, 14th, uh, and even 15th Amendment, that's what gives it teeth. And so you need both. You need laws, and then you also need a constitutional amendment um, to help effectuate those laws. And that's when you get actual protection. Now, the same way that the Civil Rights Act and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment did not completely abolish you know, segregation, discrimination, racism altogether, it does give us a good framework, a, um, a kind of launching pad for women specifically to be able to assert their rights and to challenge these uh, sex discrimination, unequal pay uh, for equal work and a lot of the other uh, gender-based discrimination. <laughs> 
So the Equal Rights Amendment has a unique intersectionality about it because it will not, it's not a privileged white woman issue. Um, we have to remember that Frederick Douglass fought for this. We have to remember that Ida B. Wells fought for this. Um, people across the field saw that this was a unique issue to advance women's rights and women of color also. So specifically, I like to remind people that as a woman, I get paid 80 cents to a man's dollar. But as an African-American woman, I get paid 60 cents to a white man's dollar. And when you have the Equal Rights Amendment, that will help shore up the Equal Pay Act and, and, and Title VII and a lot of other legislation that's out there that says women supposed to be paid equal to men, but that's still not happening. And again, it's not happening because although we have the laws, we need that constitutional anchor. And once we get the Equal Rights Amendment, it will put us closer to being able to uh, fully fulfill those rights. The patchwork solution we're working with now also means that it's not possible for Congress to pass some kinds of legislation, period. In a 2000 case called U.S. versus Morrison, the Supreme Court struck down the federal civil remedy portion of the Violence Against Women Act. The court said that Congress lacked the power to create the law under the 14th Amendment. With the ERA in place, that law would have been on much better constitutional footing. As Professor Catherine McKinnon put it, Title VII and Title IX are islands of equality in a sea of inequality. The ERA would empower Congress to notice that sea of inequality and expand those islands to continents. What the passage of an Equal Rights Amendment ought to do is expand the power of Congress to pass legislation federally that would allow individuals who've been harmed on the basis of sex, anyone, to sue civilly an individual, not just an institution, but the individual who actually does the abuse, the violation, the other forms of harassment, whether they're at work or at school or anywhere else, thus expanding what are currently these tiny islands of guaranteed equality uh, that is employment and education uh, to the rest of the society where there is no effective sex equality remedy uh, for sexual violation. Um, one can try to sort of put together various bits of existing law, but they have not been effective. And a federal civil remedy, as was struck down previously, uh, ought to be able uh, to be upheld constitutionally uh, once a federal equal rights amendment uh, is ratified. Legislators and litigators have fought tooth and nail to expand our rights. The de facto ERA and protective laws on the books aren't for naught. They've changed the U.S. legal system for the better. But they're not enough. An Equal Rights Amendment is required to make these changes last. It's vital to continue pushing forward together for a more equitable future. Here's Representative Raskin again. But also at the symbolic level, the overwhelming number of constitutions in the world now explicitly extend equal civil rights to women. And it just seems scandalous and indefensible that we wouldn't do that in our constitution. 
The U.S. is way behind other countries on this issue. RBG herself said that if she were advising a country on writing a new constitution, she would not recommend basing it on ours. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're taking a look at where the U.S. Constitution fits in with its global peers. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard and Louisa Garbowit. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls around the world. To learn more about what you can do to support ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org backslash E-R-A. To follow along with our journey, find us on Twitter at Ord Equality, O-R-D Equality. If you like our show, please subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. The problem with news right now, it's everywhere. And each day, it can feel like we're all just mindlessly scrolling. That's where Slate's What Next comes in. This short daily podcast is here to help you make sense of things. Many daily news podcasts merely explain the news. But What Next features voices and perspectives that illuminate the story du jour and expand listeners' worldviews. From fleshing out new angles to uncovering stories that have been largely unreported, host Mary Harris guides listeners through complex topics with ease, asking the right questions and drawing out new information from her guests in the process. Walking straight into thorny debates and difficult subjects daily, but having fun while doing it, What Next is exemplary podcasting. Listen and subscribe to What Next wherever you get your podcasts.